seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, I'm going to jump right in and begin reading in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so that's that's a top ten strange text, at least in the New Testament. You've got you've got healing handkerchiefs and roving bands of Jewish exorcists, and you've got people giving up what if you do the, the conversion, giving up something like two million dollars worth of magic items and magic books and so on and so forth. So this is a really strange world. It doesn't seem very much like our world at all, but I would encourage you to consider that there are reasons why this world doesn't look like that world so much. And the reason for that is is that the word of God, when it permeates into a society, begins to uh, break up all uh, all the moral and epistemological anarchy of a society. What you've got here is a bunch of, it's almost like a bunch of octopus tentacles competing against each other. Uh, It's all just darkness and mysticism and confusion and a million different ways to do spiritual things and so on. And as the word of God advanced and prevailed in Ephesus, as it advanced and prevails anywhere, it begins to make those confusions kind of evaporate and disappear to some degree. So you may experience this kind of world again if we continue as a people to walk away from the word of God, you know? I mean, there are still places in the world where this is kind of more normative. I mean, this is just a Tuesday in Africa. Like, it's just, it just is what it is. So you may experience this world again, even in your lifetime. I hope not, but it's possible. One thing that this world and our world has in common, though, is that it's just going to be a lot of people who are suffering. It's a world full of suffering. Uh, consider the status, just for a second, of the individuals who are possessed by demons. They're referenced twice in this passage. The first time's easy to miss, 
But beginning in verse 11, you'll see that when Paul's gar uh, handkerchiefs, and I'll explain all that in a minute, were carried away, they healed people of unclean spirits. And then you find later in the text, this man who was possessed by a demon. Think about what it's like to be in a, in a position where you are possessed by a demon. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a trustworthy writer on these sorts of things. He's thought seriously about it. He's experienced it only, only sometimes. And he wrote, the poor possessed person begins to act in a strange and unusual manner or is no longer able to function as he normally does or is at times deprived of the normal use of his faculties. Another commentator wrote, calling these forces unclean spirits is a convenient way of saying two things about them. First, they are non-physical powers that operate upon and sometimes within a person. Second, listen to this. Second, they defile the one they inhabit, making such a person behave in ways that are untrue to their calling as a human being. Now, there are many forms of suffering in the world, and demon possession is just one of those. Lots of people are trapped in various cycles of sin in which they're sort of almost constantly self-sabotaging their own happiness. They look at themselves and say, what in the world is going on with this indwelling sin, with this addiction, and so on and so forth. There are lots of people who long for serious, valuable, life-giving relationships, but find it extremely difficult to build and sustain healthy, life-giving relationships. Like, demon possession is one kind of suffering, but there's actually all kinds of suffering in the world today. And one of the things this text really grabbed hold of for me was this idea of this handkerchief healing people reminded me of that story of the woman who had the issue of blood, and she had spent, the Bible says she had spent all of her money on physicians who could offer her no solution, and then she touches the garment of Jesus and is healed. And I thought about this poor demon-possessed man in this passage and how not only was he not helped by these sons of Sceva, he was actually provoked. I mean, this man would have been just, he was, he was, he was actually provoked into a worse state because the sons of Sceva brought an artificial cure, let's say. And it got me to thinking about how, you know, the world is full of suffering people. And I think, I think as Christians, we're like, I want to help you. How do I help you? Like one, one thing to think about is, you know, not all help has God's power associated with it. What, what can I do to actually be helpful to a world that is suffering? I, I feel bad for people, and it happens all the time, who really are suffering in their life. And someone who is a pretender, like these sons of Sceva are, comes into their life making promises of deliverance, promises of healing, promises of change. But what they offer has no actual power behind it. It's the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And obviously that, that sort of upsets you to see the sons of Sceva types out in the world uh, making promises and failing to deliver. But just let your heart be struck with compassion for all those people who are hurting and just want the hurt to stop and they see something on TV, they see something on social media, they see a book at the bookstore that promises a solution, and it turns out to be a very disappointing mirage. And there are women like, men and women like the woman who 
had spent all of her money on doctors or this poor man who was demon-possessed and was not helped because the men who sought to help him had absolutely no ability to do so. And he just kind of stirred with compassion. I mean, I think the basic question that I was asking as I studied this text this week was, okay, the world is full of suffering people. How can I be of real help to them and not just be another disappointing mirage that promises something that it doesn't deliver? Well, as tragic as this text is in regards to all the suffering people, it is pretty clear that as God inspired this passage, he did so with at least some comedic intent. Okay, uh, there's obviously some comedic intent in this passage. One of the things that's happening in this passage is that the seven sons of Sceva are pitted against a sweat rag. Right? So, so the text, the Greek at the beginning when it's describing the handkerchief that was taken and carried away, that Paul had used and carried away, to, and, it, and that handkerchief wound up healing people and actually driving out unclean spirits of people, that's a sweat rag. I, as you can imagine, doing ministry and tent making and so forth in the Middle East, it's a sweaty job, you know? And so he had, like a lot of people would have had, he had like a, like a, a, a handkerchief or something like that that he would wipe down. One idea is that possibly he actually wore a headband, which is kind of cool to think about. You know, kind of Paul as LeBron, you know. With... But, but somehow he was using, you know, a cloth or something like that to wipe his sweat off of his face. So you've got that, this inanimate object, a sweat rag, and then you've got these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. And they're actually... They're actually competing against one another in God's providence. God has ordained in the, in the turning of events that the sons of Sceva would go up against a sweat rag, trying to accomplish the same thing. Of course, sweat rag's not trying to accomplish anything. But let's, let's talk about this a little bit. So let's think about these sons of Sceva. I, I would say the key to properly understanding this text, or at least one key, is to understand how impressive these men were to the surrounding culture. We read the story so fast, they look like Keystone Cops to us. But that's really not the way the text is presenting them. The text is written to convey that they are impressive men. The number seven was seen, of course, as a kind of magical or holy number. These men were supposedly sons of a high priest, although we don't think that's actually true. We think that was just something they were claiming about themselves. Uh, high priests were seen as especially magical in their ability to, their ab ability alone to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple. And when it says that they were itinerant, it means they were professionals. They traveled around the Roman Empire making money with their so-called magic. And it's easy to forget some stuff we read in Acts before that we should probably remember because this was kind of a common thing, actually. Back in Acts 9, we read about a guy named Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. The Acts, 9, uh, Acts 8, verse 9, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, 
this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And then again in Acts chapter 13, there's another fellow named Bar-Jesus. And in verse 6, it says that when they, Paul, had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And he was a pro-council, he was with the pro-council, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. So this, uh, this Bar-Jesus fellow, he actually was in some sort of official capacity for this Roman proconsul in Paphos. So this kind of Jewish mystic magic exorcist kind of thing actually was a position of esteem and influence in the ancient world. One commentator writes, in the Greco-Roman world, Jewish exorcists were held in high esteem for the venerability of their religion and the strangeness of their Hebrew incantations. Magicians and charlatans were omnipresent in the culture, offering various cures and blessings by their spells and incantations, all for financial consideration. Angelo and I were driving through, uh, I think, Zambia one time, and there was a handmade sign on the side of the road that a witch doctor had made, and it said, cures for... HIV, um, impotence, and anal itching. <laughs> like, there's your three cures. And, and what's going on there is exactly what this text is describing. Uh, people putting their faith in some sort of Gnostic, higher or secret knowledge, some practice of magic. And so when you read this text, it's important to realize that these sons of Sceva are kind of meant to look impressive. Um, we actually have some archaeological pap- papyri, that, like manuscripts, that actually show more than just these fellows doing this. There are, there are actual spells that have been uh, discovered of Jewish mystics who even did, uh, in these, in these uh, extra apocryphal sources, even did invoke the name of Jesus as part of their spells. Uh, one of the spells reads, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Abraham, the God of Abraham. And another one reads, Hail God of Abraham, God of Isaac, Hail God of Jacob, Jesus Christus, Holy Spirit, Son of the Father. <laughs> like, like they're just throwing stuff out there, right? And man, I think we could probably find that on TV right now if we if we got the remote out and went looking for it. So you've got the sons of Sceva who are supposed to be very impressive. They do appear impressive. To the, uh, to the outside world. And then on the other hand, in verse 11, you got a sweat rag, right? Now, uh, if someone were to say, hey, we're gonna have a demon casting contest. On the one hand, we got the seven sons of Sceva, and on the other hand, we got the sweat rag. Place your bets. Don't you think, knowing what you know now, that all of the money would have gone on the sons of Sceva. But in the course of our text, we see that what the sons of Sceva could not do in verse 15, 16, namely cast out a demon, the sweat rag did repeatedly, i.e. it delivered many people from their unclean spirits. Now, what are we to take away with all this, from all this? Here's the deal. All that really matters in life is surrender to God. The rest of it is just a big, fat 
nothing burger. All that really matters in life is surrender to God. You can fake your way for a while through life without surrendering to God, but one, or some, one day or another, some crisis is gonna hit you. God has it already set up, and that crisis is gonna hand you your lunch if you're not surrendered to God. You will be happy to escape beaten and naked with your life. All that really matters. This is, what, this is the main lesson of the sweat rag versus the skivas is all that really matters is surrender to God. All that really matters, the only difference going on in this text is that one thing, a mere inanimate object, by its very nature can't help but be surrendered to God. It has no will. It just is a rag. And it's just submitted. It's just an instrument. It just does whatever the owner of the, of the thing wants it to. It really just does whatever God wants it to. And on the other hand, you've got these men who appear to be so impressive who have absolutely no answers for the really difficult things in life. This is a theme which God hammers home time and time again all throughout the scriptures, and it's kind of what God's doing when he pits Moses against Pharaoh or David against Goliath or Elijah against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And this is the meaning behind one of the verses I read this morning to open. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. And here in our text, in Acts 19, the point is made in even starker terms. I mean, David and Goliath looks like kind of a, you know, a bad idea, right? Like it's like David, Goliath, Moses, Pharaoh, kind of super outnumbered, one much stronger than the other. But this text, Acts 19, 11 through 20, it's like sweat rag versus seven sons of a high priest. And God's just driving this point that he makes over and over again in the scripture's home. All that matters is that you're surrendered to him. Everything else is just paper mache. I had the privilege years ago when I was about 16 years old, uh, I waited tables on a guy every, about every day he would come in to the restaurant and he was a World War II veteran. He just barely made it into the war before the war ended. Uh, he was on the younger side for most of the war. And he was telling me that uh, there was an iron rationing, there was a metal rationing where you couldn't get metal, basically. It all had to go to the war effort back in the day. And he had this old car that was, uh, it was all beaten up and so forth. And he had this girl he really liked, and he was trying to impress her. And he wanted to pick her up in his car, but he just was ashamed of his car. But he couldn't get any steel to make his car look better. And so he went out for a whole Saturday and paper macheed a complete fender, <laughs> like... Uh, like it was like paper mache bondo, you know, and he like reef, he like fixes all the dents in his hood with more paper mache and so on, and uh, it's like gets it, and then he paints it. Like it takes him all day to do this, and here's this. You could imagine me, 16 year old, sit, listen to this guy talk with his cup of coffee, and he said, "But God had other plans," <laughs> because when I went to pick her up on Sunday night, there was a thunderstorm. <laughs> And he said, I'm, I'm parked in her driveway or, you know, in front of her house to pick her up. 
and my car, like pieces of my car are falling off. Well, this is really, this is really what the unsurrendered life is. It can appear for a time to be working for you. But one day the storm will come, like Jesus taught in the Gospels. The storm's coming. What's your house built on, right? That's the point of that story. And so what you see here is you see a sort of impressive paper mache versus the least impressive thing you might be able to think of or one of them. And this is all just driving home this point that Paul makes, glorious point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 27 when he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's the main takeaway truth for this entire message. Being a surrendered nothing is better than being an unsurrendered something. Being a surrendered nothing is better than being an unsurrendered something. It's safer, it's truer, it's just better to be a surrendered nothing. And what do we mean by surrender? We mean, here I am, God. I don't deserve a say. I am your instrument. You do what you want to do with my life. You do what you want to do with my money. You do what you want to do with my health. You do what you want to do with my future. I am simply yours, period, end of story. Surrender looks at the sweat rag with a bit of envy. Surrender looks at Balaam's donkey with a bit of envy. Surrender looks at the stones during the triumphal entry with a bit of envy and say, I kind of wish sometimes surrender was as easy for me as it is for these things because the truth is, is that all that actually matters in life is to simply be surrendered in the hand of God. Now, as I've referenced earlier, surrender to life is actually, surrender to God is actually the only winning strategy for life. Every other strategy for life appears to be a better option and winds up being a complete dead end, full of humiliation and shame. Yeah, I mean, here's the truth, guys. It, Another level of comedy in this text is, is, the, is the nakedness, right? <laughs> they're, 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 I guarantee you, given kind of what they were about and what they were trying to accomplish, they were wearing nice clothes, right? This was sort of, they probably had some sort of matching. I'm kind of picturing like a, a West Side Story kind of matching uniform gang of Jewish exorcists kind of thing, you know? They all had matching tracksuits or something. And they walk into this house uh, everyone looks at them and says, there's somebody, look at, the, look at how they're dressed, look at how they hold themselves, look, they're the sons of a Jewish high priest, look, they're exorcists and so on, and all of this is pretense, all of it is paper mache but you know what's hard about the, the pretense and paper mache life? It doesn't take very long until you start believing your own nonsense, <laughs> right? That's the worst thing about walking through life a, 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 attempting to be um, 
something you're not, attempting to be impressive to the world, at some point, you know, you're telling the world, I'm impressive. One time, for every 10 times, you're telling it to yourself, and eventually you're going to believe it. It's the mantra you keep repeating over and over and over again. And so you've got these men, they're dressed impressively, they, they probably have a fake lineage to a high priest. I mean, who knows how many fake things are in their life? Who knows how much pretense? Who, mo- who knows how much paper mache? It really seems like a lot. I mean, even the magic seems most likely to be mostly pretense, mostly smoke and mirrors. But there's always a moment coming for you in your life where you can't get away. Death is one of those moments. All the paper mache, it's nothing. You got no more bluffs. You got, you got no more pretense. If you die immediately, you didn't even have a chance to say something. If you die slowly, all of this stuff is like that man's car in the rain. As you lay on your deathbed, dealing with the reality that you were always nothing. You just had the option to be something in your nothingness if you had surrendered to the Lord. And so it appears initially that the bluffing, I am something way of doing life is a winning strategy. But there's always a day when you will encounter a thing, a force that reveals you all the way down to your naked form. And and in this case, they're they're in a room with a demon-possessed man, but there will be something in your life that simply asserts the truth in an undeniable way that you can't get away from. And whether you are surrendered or not surrendered to the Lord will be the only issue, and it will actually be the only way of getting out of that situation. So it doesn't appear initially that surrendered nothingness is a winning strategy for life, but it is the only winning strategy for life. We laugh, guys, this is rough. We laugh at these men for trying to cast out a demon without, with using a platitude. Oh my goodness, you don't think you've got some platitudes that are completely baseless that you use to live? We laugh at these men for trying to do this incredibly difficult thing to cast out a demon without being fully surrendered to God. You're trying to live your life sometimes without being fully surrendered to God. Take take the scorn you are meant to feel because God is the architect of perfect stories and you're supposed to look at these and think, oh my goodness, you're being ridiculous. You really thought you could get away with that. Take that feeling, turn it back on yourself, and understand this is what we do. This is what we do. Apart from Christ, this is all we do. We try to live this life without surrendering to him. And it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Hosea 13.3 describes the unsurrendered man like a morning mist, like dew that goes away early. That's a very common 
way of talking about this sort of thing in the scriptures. You can find references to that kind of thing over and over again. And I think the thing that's kind of important to remember when you read those texts is what's causing the dew and the mist to go away? It's the sun rising. And all of our unsurrendered lives are like mist, are like dew. And one day Jesus will say, enough, enough. You're gonna be who you actually, you're gonna be seen for who you actually are. You're gonna see yourself for who you actually are. So, surrender. Surrender, all of you, surrender. Surrender even when it scares you. Make being a surrendered nothing the, the aspiration of your life. Make being a surrendered nothing the aspiration of your life. Count, Count Zinzendorf was a wealthy man, born into wealth, a German, uh, the 1700s. And he really just had life made before he was even born. I often wonder, you know, Jesus looks at the rich young ruler who went away sad and Jesus, you know, feels compassion for him. Uh, I bet you Jesus was able to see Count Zinzendorf and a million other rich young rulers who didn't go away sad. This man was born into wealth, born into prosperity, and was a godly man. And he used his wealth to care for Christians who were hurting and to spread the gospel all over the world. He sent missionaries everywhere. And when he would send these missionaries, you know, being a missionary in the 1700s to say the Caribbean or Africa, China, that's a one-way ticket, right? And so he would say the same thing over and over again. He had different ways of saying it, but, but it's all been summarized in one particular quote that he would say to all of these Christians under his care and to all the missionaries he would send out, he would say this, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Be a surrendered nothing. And of course, we see that those surrendered people are not so easily forgotten. Even Paul's lowly sweat rag gets recorded in the scripture. We're talking about it today. That's surrendered things, even if they try to be forgotten. No eyes see, no ears heard what God is prepared to do on behalf of the man whose heart is fully his. Surrendered, some, a surrendered nothing is basically everything. As Walter Scott Arthur wrote, the surrendered life is the militant, victorious life. Paul surrendered and Rome heard the gospel. Livingston surrendered and Africa is turning to Christ. Uh, Huss surrendered and religious patriotism swept a, a nation. Luther surrendered, and the Protestant Reformation shook the religious world. But each one of these men, there was a moment in their lives when their surrender looked like foolishness. Last thing to mention about this is that an abiding and surrendered life is full of accidental fruitfulness. So I've been basically rhetorically saying, let's be like the sweat rag. Let's draw back one step there and say, let's, let's try to be like Paul. Here's the interesting thing. 
When you are a faithful person surrendered to Christ on mission for Jesus, doing your best to love and obey him by loving others, you are not only going to be fruitful in the thing you're trying to be fruitful, maybe you will but won't be, there's going to be all sorts of accidental wins, accidental fruitfulness in your life, peripheral fruitfulness. It seems clear to me that Paul was not planning on his rags being carried away. The word carried away seems to imply that. Uh, This was not a program that Paul had set up. Uh, He did not say, here's what we'll do. I'll sweat on a bunch of stuff, and you guys bring it out, and I'll just sit here in the air conditioning. No, uh, uh, no, this this is an unforeseen development. Guys, when you're surrendered to the Lord, about 99% of the good you'll do in the world is an unforeseen development. The periphery, it had, it had, you had no expectation that it was gonna be a thing. The beautiful thing about a surrendered life, and there's a, Psalm 1 is a really good job of, of contrasting these two things. So the man who is not trusting, the man who is not surrendered, he is described in Psalm 1-4 as the chaff that gets carried away in the wind. It's the same thing as the paper mache. It's the same thing as the dew. It's, it's the temporary thing that's just gone before you know it. But then, he, but then someone also says that the man who surrenders to the law of God, meditates on it day and night, he is like a tree planted beside streams of water. All he does prospers. When Paul says in Romans 8.28 that all things work together for the good of him who know him and called to according to his purpose, like it means, um, it means a million things, but one of the things it means is that even the periphery happenstances of your life wind up yielding fruit that blesses others. You know, in some way, you could just say that Paul was working hard and his hard work produced sweat and the unpleasantness of the sweat provoked him to grab a rag and to wipe his face. And God's like, I'm gonna, to be, I'm gonna be in all of that. The most mundane, the most peripheral, I'm gonna be in all of that. If you are surrendered to the Lord, this is sort of actually what life is. It's, you know, occasionally, I mean, probably most of the time you have some goals and some things that you're trying to accomplish. I think that's very good. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. But as you just trust and yield and surrender to the Lord, stuff's gonna be spinning off of you that falls into the ground and produces fruit. You had no expectation would ever be there. I kind of think of it like an absent-minded Johnny Appleseed walking through the world with a hole in his bag And he's like intentionally planting seeds here and here and here. And he does this his whole lifetime. He walks all over the United States planting trees intentionally here and here and there. But there's like seeds leaking. He has plenty of seeds in this this story. And, uh, And, you know, he gets done and God pulls him up kind of over the earth that he walked. And he sees like, I planted that orchard, I planted that orchard, I planted that orchard. And then he's like, but God, what's all these, what's all these apple trees kind of just everywhere? He's like, oh, that was... That was just by accident. It was your accidental fruitfulness. God's like, I'm not only gonna help you be fruitful in the things you're called to do, I'm gonna cause you to be accidentally fruitful. 
Um, that's what Paul's doing right now in this text. He's being accidentally fruitful. And all of this is predicted entirely in what Jesus promises in John 15, 4 through 5. Abide in me, surrender. Abide, surrender, surrender, abide. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And about 1% of it was intentional. And about 99% of it was accidental. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you are paper mache. You are pretend important. You are pretend impressive. You are the dew that vanishes when the sun rises. You are the house that crumbles when the storm comes. Apart from me, you are nothing. But if you will simply be a surrendered nothing, you will bear much fruit. So let's wrap this up just by asking a very serious question. I hope you uh, have the faith to really just pause for a second. We're running ahead of schedule, so you got time. Hey, seriously. Are you... Are you a fully surrendered instrument to the Lord right now? There are a lot of, um, or some, no's. Maybe you've been in your life for so long you don't you forgot they they were no's originally. Hey, I don't know how to unpack all that. I don't think we can go back and find and find all the times we told God no. I think we have to trust that God is so gracious and kind that if we would just say to him today, I'm pretty sure I need to surrender to you, Lord. That he would say, okay, let's start today. Let's start today. There's a book that I started reading when I was like 22 and I closed it because it was scary. And it's a book called uh, Absolute Surrender by Andrew Murray. And I don't think, after I've, I'm reading it now, and I, I, uh, I think I must have closed it pretty early. <laughs> uh, I think I must have closed it almost after reading the title, to be honest with you. The, the idea of absolute surrender. If you understand what it is, it can't help but frighten you. If, you, if you're not frightened by the idea of absolute surrender, you, you don't understand what God sometimes does with people who absolutely surrender. So I remember closing the book, and I wasn't in a real good space. I was in my first pastorate, and I was really struggling with some stuff, and I, I remember just thinking, I just, I just can't do more, God. I just can't do more. And what it felt like when I read the, maybe the first two pages of that book was, do more. Um, that's how my 22-year-old brain processed the idea of surrender. Do more. Now I'm reading it again at 46. 
and I get past the first two pages. I've just developed a little bit more courage, that's all. Uh, I get past the first couple pages, and Andrew Murray says, hey, you will be frightened by this idea. Surrender your fears first. Okay, I can do that. Surrender your fears first. Surrender your fear of surrendering. Give that to the Lord today. Give to the Lord just this complete blank check permission to do with you in your life what he would choose to do. Look to this sweat rag in the scripture and say, I think in many ways, I wish I could just be that obedient. But look to Paul as well and say, you were, you were a man like me who just kept saying yes to the Lord. And your life, Paul, your life is full of not only intentional but many, many accidental fruits. To, to paraphrase David in Psalm 84, this is the, my heart attitude as I was preparing this sermon. I would rather be a sweat rag in the hands of the Lord than to go another day living an unsurrendered life. When Paul says, or when, when David says in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell among the tents of the wicked. I think, I think this is what he was getting at. I would rather be a nothing who is surrendered than a something living in a tent that any day could collapse. For communion, I'll read to you this morning from Luke 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray.